I am Brooklyn-based psychotherapist Nikita Banks, and I am your host of the Black Therapist Podcast. The Black Therapist Podcast is the podcast where we discuss the unique issues people of color face when dealing with mental health issues and mental health diagnosis. If you would like to reach out to us for feedback or show suggestions, show topics, please feel free to contact us at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com. You can sign up to our mailing list at blacktherapistpodcast.com. You can listen to new or past episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, and Google Play. And if you want to sign up to our mailing list or our free mental health course, text GET HAPPY to 66866. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Black Therapist Podcast. I cannot wait to, for you to hear this new interview with Dr. Angela Clax. We have a good time in this interview and I hope you guys like it. Dr. Clax is, as soon as I find her information, Dr. Angela Clax is the head of Clax and Associates, LLC. She's an outpatient mental health provider and she typically services the surrounding Philadelphia area. So I want you guys to get into this new episode. But first, my new book. Oh my God. So our new book, Finding Happy, Seven Steps to Relationships That Will Not Steal Your Joy is available for pre-order on Amazon. And the book itself, like the actual, I don't know, the actual hardcover book. I mean, it's not a hardcover book because it's a softcover book. But the book will be available for purchase in a few days. So it's actually up on Amazon, right? But I had to order a copy myself for quality control because I haven't had it. Like, I didn't see it printed. I haven't had a, a, a copy of it. So I had to, like, pay for <laughs> and order a copy of my own printed book. So that is coming to me within a few days. So as soon as I get that, I'll make sure there's no errors it all looks great, it all looks good, and then I'll be able to like promote it on my social media. But in the meanwhile, if you can't wait, I think I did we did a pretty good job um making sure that the book looks good and that it it doesn't have any errors or any issues with it, but I really can't say what it would look like in print until I see it. So I still wanna make sure that is of good qualities, but if you cannot wait for me to get a copy and give you the go ahead, then you can go up on Amazon right now and get a copy of our new book, Finding Happy, Seven Steps to Relationships That Will Not Steal Your Joy. Also, the course is up for pre-order, um, and I'm, I'm offering a discount code for everybody who wants to order it now, so that's something that you can contact me for. I'm going to give you the date of the actual release of the course that goes along with the workbook, and that will be coming out shortly. All right, so we're going to just jump right into this episode with Dr. Clax, Angela Clax. I hope her name is Dr. Yes, Ooh. yes, Dr. Angela Roman Clax. Okay, so I just want to get right into the episode right now, and we will talk to you later. Bye. So, introduce yourself to the Okay, people. I am Dr. Angela Clack. I am a licensed psychotherapist in Southern New Jersey. I'm also a trained uh, doctorate of psychology. Right now, I'm working in private practice in Cipperville, New Jersey. And um, 
my primary population is adolescents and women, and specifically women of color and um, trauma and depression. Okay. So, I mean, with, with that population, what would you say is the most important thing that they need to work on? Wow. So, great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> what developed that niche for me over the last, I would say, about eight years in terms of working with women of color is because they were coming in with um, depression and lots of trauma. And it wasn't that they could give language to the trauma. Many of their mm-hmm. lived experiences, they would not have called it trauma, but working mm-hmm. through and unpacking it, then they recognize, wow, I. I know why I'm feeling so heavy and so overburdened um, and giving them some sense about this is what trauma looks like. It doesn't have to be the war veteran because that's traditionally what everybody's trained to see and understand that people returning from war. That's kind of where the trauma um, language started with. But for us and understanding our lived experience and what's happening more frequently and unpacking that for them, it goes back generations. And so when I find what they need to work on most is even being able to give language to emotions. Mm-hmm. And, and when, you say, when you say trauma, immediately I start to think about PTSD, especially when you think in terms of like, you know, veterans. Mm-hmm. So just so I understand what you mean by that. When you say trauma, you mean the residual effects of trauma. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, and like childhood sexual abuse, families with generations of incest, domestic violence, sexual assault, medical crisis as well. I have a number of women who are struggling with medical issues that they've had for a really long time that are also manifesting in the in now as mental health. So it's a lot of stress around um, not having taken care of this, the guilt of not having taken care of this. So even medical trauma is one that people overlook, but it is really huge in women of color with the fibroids that, you know, are much more um, being diagnosed for women of color. And then the treatment options for us, Mm -hmm. even the treatment options for us are often the most extreme. And um, so getting women to even pay attention to their health holistically, mind, body, soul, and spirit, the whole person. And really, that's my approach to my psychotherapy is very holistic. Yeah. And, and also, you know what? I think that we, also, we don't think of poverty as trauma. We don't mm-hmm. think of racism as trauma. Um, we, we also don't think of mental illness and the effects of be, growing up in certain environments, maladaptive behaviors that we've learned as being trauma like the all of all of these things are trauma and and the way i like to think of trauma is literally like pennies in a bank a piggy bank Mm. Mm. and if you if you add sexual abuse as one penny and you add you know growing up in an impoverished environment as another penny and you add um you know, have, not having a father as another penny, mm-hmm. being physically abused and verbally abused and all of these things. Like if you keep adding these things as like pennies to a piggy bank, 
then you realize the totality of all of the things that we carry around as human beings mm-hmm. and as black mm-hmm. people because of the, the way we are treated in this society. We're being weighed down by all of these things. And so when, when you say trauma right now, it seems very kitsch and it seems like it's a word that people use that really loses its meaning when you think in terms of mm-hmm. like going to war and seeing people get murdered and then being treated badly or, or having to deal with racial injustice in America as not being the same or, or being equitable, mm-hmm. but it's worse because you may go to war and see trauma, but you're in a certain environment and then you get to come home if you mm-hmm. are a soldier or if you were dealing with certain things, if you're a policeman and you had, you, you, saw a shooting or you were involved in a shooting but when you're dealing with trauma in your community there's nowhere else for you to go mm-hmm. from it mm-hmm. and I think that people don't see the difference in that I, there's a lot of what we, we treat is PTSD mm-hmm. 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 yeah I agree yeah what is your approach in dealing with trauma, especially when dealing with women who have have maybe experienced some sort of sexual violence or um, I, I like to say someone that I like to define sexual violence as someone whose safety who didn't feel safe in an environment where there was some sexually charged energy because it may be people don't think about people think about sexual violence in the extreme so either as incest or rape but I've treated sex offenders um, in my prior experience and it could be something as I don't I hate to say something as simple but just because right. of the way our brain works and the way we equate these things and we rank these things something like you know, a man rubbing up against you in the subway Mm -hmm. or somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, just violating your intimate space. So how, what approach do you use specifically for this population? My main objective in the beginning is giving women a voice, a place, a safe space. Many of the women who come to me have thought about picking up the phone, have called, have hung up, Getting the courage to even get in the room is huge. And so I really work hard to create a very welcoming, a very safe space to even give them um, a place to feel like they can start to disclose and to trust again. Some of them have been in therapy before and they weren't, um, they didn't get that experience. We'll put it that way. And so it turned them off and, and, and they didn't follow up. And then they decide, oh, someone says, hey, I have someone, you know, and they feel a little bit more trusting that's a personal recommendation or they see a therapist somewhere and they like their work and they decide to give it a chance again. So there's a lot of repairing that happens in that process. Um, but for me, it is really to um, start a, a bonding and therapeutic relationship with them first and foremost. And then I start to help them to unpack things. I find that you don't really have to, the therapist doesn't have to really have a lot of, of all these kind of different tools because once you give them that space, they begin to work with the therapist to unpack it. So you don't have to do a lot because they bring a lot. 
and that's why I love working with women. I love working with women because they have such energy. They have such, um, you know, they just bring uh, energy into their room and space where they're ready to reclaim all that was taken from them, whether it's residuals or trauma, whether it's workplace discrimination, because I get a lot of that with women with supervisors who have really, really disrespected them and who they are and their, and their expertise and have made them feel like they were less than. So we do a lot of reparations around that. Um, relationships, you know, I'm feeling um, I'm not worthy of relationships because I've had several failed relationships. Well, let's unpack that. Let's see where that where that responsibility lies. You take the responsibility for your part, but let's look at the guys you're choosing. Yeah. <laughs> let's look at all the dynamics. So there's so much. Once you get them in the room, there's so much richness there to work on. And then it's really helping them to stay because when things get hard, we know people will retreat. So it's also teaching them coping like the conversations are going to eventually get pretty painful. But if you hang in there, I promise you on the other side, you will feel so much better and you will live a very, a, a very different life. The life you really deserve. Right. That's kind of where I am with women. I just, you know, I used to sit with their sadness a lot and I'm like, wow, there's so much here. It's just really helping them to bridge from where they are to what's on the other side of that. And that's a, just building a lot of trust with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a theory that I don't know if I really want to share today, (laughs) but I have a theory, especially in treating black women, um, Uh that a lot of black women that I see, maybe just because it's prevalent in my family, they have a a specific personality makeup and a lot of what makeup can you say that again? Different personality makeup. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it to me, it feels like, um, it's schizoid personality disorder. Mm. Just a lot, just a lot of cold shutting down of the emotions. You know, I don't care about anything. I I don't want the closeness. Don't ask me anything. Mm. And it, it becomes a barrier to mm-hmm. the intimacy that we say that we deserve. Mm. And as I, I look at the relationships that that are in my my family I'm you know I don't I try not to diagnose my my family but you know it's hard (laughs) right you know it's hard not to just be walking down the street and you see certain things and you'd be like let me cross the street because that's that looks like work right right there I don't want to get involved in in that (laughs) but to me like I see a lot of a lot of black women struggling on the spectrum of of this personality makeup and I see a lot of black men. I mean, I can't wait till I get a male therapist on the show. But I see a lot of black men struggling with on the spectrum of narcissism. Mm, mm. That's very interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that. I mean, I, and I think, and I think the, I, I think I kind of understand the seeds of how we are treated in this this country are planted within our personalities and how we mm-hmm. interact with each other. But I haven't, like, I need to get a researcher on or somebody so I can really talk about this because I haven't unpacked it. But I, gotcha. I think that especially for people treating men of color and, and people treating women of color, I think it's something mm-hmm. that we kind of have to be mindful of. But it's something that mm-hmm. I, I see a lot. Mm, especially okay. with the, with the um, it's, 
don't know if it's schizoid. I can't ever say it right. Whenever I see it, you, 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 I think you did. You said the schizoid. I, I say schizoid, but you know, you know, I'm a woman of a certain age, so you know, back in the day, schizoid. <laughs> it meant something else. You know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> it meant something else in these out here in these Brooklyn streets. <laughs> so I know that that's not the way you pronounce. I, I believe it's pronounced schizoid. Um, schizoid. Mm, and I believe that okay. that's like the. But I say schizoid because you know I'm from the hood. But right. that particular personality disorder, um, and I'm not—I'm like I said—I'm not prepared to go into it right now. But that mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. truly believe that I see it a lot, and I see it prevalently a lot more in older women of color. Mm-hmm. When they get to that point where they're done with relationships, they're done with these their kids, they don't want to be so bothered, and my man is Jesus Christ. Mm, interesting. They kind of retreat within themselves, and they they separate more so from community. Hmm. I don't know. It's just that's just interesting. Doing the wrong that's interesting. Something I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. How do you deal with these kinds of women? I know in my friend group now, you know, I'm my my son will be 21. Ooh, next week. Oh. You know, I'm not sure when the show is going to air, but he'll be 21 soon in October. And um, just kind of dealing with that whole thing, knowing that I, I, I you know, I probably don't don't want to have any more children. And yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, getting to the point in my life where I'm stable, stable in my career and very career oriented and focused. And a lot of my friends are struggling with this idea that they waited until marriage to have children mm-hmm. and now they're not married and you know mm-hmm. childbearing ages is, is you know not that many shopper days left till Christmas right. and they're trying to decide what it is that they want want to do and still mm-hmm. who they want to be in their lives and a general unhappiness and giving up on love mm-hmm. so when someone comes into your practice and they're struggling with that like what how do you help them unpack all of those feelings? What well, is a lot, and for me, I begin to. Then, I, I want them to prioritize what's most important because it is a lot. And while it's layered, I'm sure they're all related to the same thing. My identity, who have I become? Um, my children are grown. There's no more, you know, unless they're um, taking care of grandchildren. But my children are grown. Maybe I am a divorcee now, or maybe I'm a widow. Their whole identity is changing, but at the same time, they're evolving. Um, and they could be evolving into this whole sexual revolution of freedom. Now I can do whatever because I've had a couple of women like that who are just experiencing life in a whole nother way and in that, in that part of their life. And then I have some who, like I said, are still grieving widows or, like you said, that woman who's now 36 and hasn't had any children and longs for having had a family. But she put her career and education as a priority first. And so for me, it's like, okay, so first of all, do you know what you want? And so a lot of times we're unpacking that kind of ambivalence and, and those kind of conflicted feelings. Well, yeah, I would love this, but this. I love this. What options have you considered? Who's your support system? So it's like building up to really defining who I am again. And I think sometimes people think you just have this one identity all your life. 
but it's not. It's like phases in your life and experiences. That's the big thing I tell people. Experiences will change who you are for good or for not so good. But in any way, you're going to grow if you embrace it. You know, you can decide this is a horrible experience and this shouldn't have happened to me. And, and I can live in that world. I can stay stuck there 30, 40 years. That's a very miserable place to be. And I've had women who've done that, who were divorced when their kids were four and the kids are 34. And they still are stuck in that place where they were divorced. And so that takes a, a bit of a journey. But, you know, ultimately, and I know we've all seen this post, but it is so true. You are not responsible for the trauma and the things happen to you, but you're solely responsible for your healing. Nobody can make you, you know, you can be in therapy forever. You got to be able to get to that place where you're like, I'm, I, now I'm really tired of being tired and I want more or I, I, I'm sick and I want to be well, but people have to embrace that there's going to be work. I got to do the work. Lord. The therapist is the conduit, but you got to do the work. And introspection. Mm-hmm. It's so hard mm-hmm. for people to do, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess because mm-hmm. of, you know, just I, the way my personality is, I've always been a, a, a person that's gone within. Sometimes too much, because I can stay inside my mm-hmm. head a little bit. But okay. I, I the, the thing that makes me personality-wise great at this job is that I am able to separate my feelings from my emotions. Mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. do something because I'm a woman and I'm human because I'm reacting sh- strictly off of my emotions and my feelings and being inside my feelings. But I mm-hmm. could also look back on that maybe 10 minutes later or 15 minutes later or be, being reflective about it and being like, girl, you know you was dead wrong because you should have done <laughs> X, Y, and Z. You know you were operating from a from a space or a spirit of jealousy or you know you were operating right. from a Girl, why did you say that? You know that was your insecurity saying that. And and now mm-hmm. with the tools that I have, it makes it even easier for me to self-correct earlier because mm-hmm. I, I'm reflective mm-hmm. and I'm introspective and I can see it. And that's what therapy yeah. gave me, but also being in yeah. the field gave me. I wonder yeah. why it's yeah. so difficult for other people, especially for me looking at them and trying not to be judgmental about it. But it's it's yeah, hard for, yeah. for me to understand why people are not also very self reflective. I think now you know, kind of thinking about it as you're talking. One of the things that I do work hard in therapy on, and I've worked with myself on, is developing a level of self awareness. Mm-hmm. And I know that growing up, depending on what family you grew up in, and probably probably most of us. Um, we were not really allowed to have that kind of voice. We were not really taught to think critically about ourselves. That's called being selfish. We were not really taught about, do you know where you're feeling? Do you know why you're feeling? Those weren't, those kind of reflections weren't taught to us. And I think therapy offers that to women to to look at themselves. Um, And again, I I think we all thought that that was selfish back growing up like why are you always focusing on yourself <laughs> you know why are you always thinking about yourself you should share and all those kind of things and or you're sharing too much so there's so many rules we grew up with that now we're realizing that to be in touch with who we are it really is about being a little bit selfish but not in a way that um not in a way that hurts anybody else because sometimes you have to be selfish to get you to look at you you can't take on and that's the other thing we know that we 
do this kind of superwoman sentiment, trying to do everything for everybody, which deflects from our self-awareness and self-reflection. Yeah. So I think it's about teaching little girls and teenage girls now that come into our practices how to create a level of self-awareness. Mm. And you know what? That's That's something that I haven't, done in my practice Mm -hmm. my goal with my with my girls is usually to give them a voice Mm -hmm. and maybe that comes from just what you said growing up in an environment where girls or children are supposed to be seen and not heard Mm -hmm. you know what I mean or Mm -hmm. you know we we have these concepts that what happens in this house stays in this house and it's about secrecy and silence and shame and so I let my parents know I may not fix the things that you think need to be fixed because they always feel like, you know, they're bringing their kid off to you, dropping their kid off to you for you to fix what they think the problem is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I also let yeah. them know, like, my, my job here is to give them a voice and help you be able to honor their voice. Because that's... And isn't that difficult? Oh, my gosh, that is Hell so yeah. tough. Hell yeah. <laughs> so tough. <laughs> You know, they because I think they look at us. Voice. They like a voice. Right. I, I think that. they look at us as, as, as aligning with them. Uh-huh. Like, tell my daughter, I, I can't believe how many times they're like, yeah, tell her that if she doesn't mm-hmm. do this, this should happen. You should tell her. Look at her. She wants her. Tell her. And it's like, so if I'm aligned with you, you know I'm not going to go anywhere in this conversation with your child because you're not giving another perspective. You're not allowing the other person to open up their heart and mind to hear things. You want me to mimic and puppet you. Yeah. That's not therapy. I, t- I had to tell a mother. I was like, mommy, I'm, I'm not... I'm not um, the disciplinarian. <laughs> yeah, daddy, yeah. you can't send him here and tell him, you know, like I check in with you to find out what's going on through the week, but I'm not, I'm not going to be him in my office, just so you know. Right. <laughs> I'm going to tell your therapist, you wait. Yeah, and she right. was literally doing that, and I was like, no, 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 you have to stop that because he's not going to tell me anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he would come to my office all scared. I was like, I don't know what she said to you. But how was your week? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. They just want you to fix their kids, but they yeah. don't want to realize that they are a, you know, the, the children are just a symptom. Yes. The, the oh my goodness. Yeah. And there's something broken in the family. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So true. Uh, tell them about <laughs> your book. Okay, awesome. Thank you for asking and, and allowing me to speak to that too. So, as a result of my work over the last, I would say, 10 years, as I saw more and more women of color who were being very courageous and coming into to therapy, my case started, so, case started to get really, really big. And um, I just couldn't, I knew, I said, I can't see everybody. And so, I was thinking, like, how, how do I. How do I give women of color information that will do two things? One, if they if they never come into a therapist's office because of their own fears or whatever reasons, what would give them some information and some hope and some um, resources? So that was one um, reason for me writing the book. And the second was for women who um, I just couldn't see. I don't know if they live in places where they could see people who look like them. And so I wanted them to get a sense of they weren't alone. Mm-hmm. 
and then if I could put narratives together and also give them some clinical information in the same set, in the same book, then that would give them either one, some motivation to say, wow, if this is what therapy is supposed to be like, maybe, maybe I'll give it a chance. Or if I never find someone, this is a resource for me. And so over the, I would say it took me two years. I picked it up, I put it down, I picked it up. And then I finally got me an editor and a book coach and, and, and they really kicked my behind and said, what are you waiting for? Um, people are waiting for this and we got it done. And so the title is Women of Color Talk psychological narratives on trauma and depression and so what I did is um, of course all identifying information is protected and I brought stories together and parts of stories together of women who have been in many ways traumatized by their lived experiences and I was finding so many common themes like you know and I think People have this whole reaction to the Me Too movement, as and, and they're always like, well, why didn't people report and why didn't report? There are many more that still aren't reporting, so that's just the tip of the iceberg that they're seeing. And I have yet to meet a woman in my practice in the last 10 years, a woman of color, who did not have an abuse history. Yep. There hasn't, I mean, it, it didn't come up in the intake. It comes up later. Yep. And they'll say, I thought I told you. No, you didn't. Yeah. You didn't. And so there, I know that there are so many other things buried for women. And when they're ready, they'll, they'll tell you. They'll tell you. And and so that was the other reason. I said, whoa, how many more women out there are struggling with these, these um, demons, these kind of burdens and things that they're not talking about? And so I put all that together in a book. And um, I talk a lot about, I have one chapter that I dedicated to non-minority clinicians because some women of color are not in a place to see someone who looks like them. And so I wanted to give the white clinicians and, and maybe, maybe they're seeing um, someone from another country, I don't know, but it was really for me to say, this is how you relate, this is how you keep them, and this is how they respect you. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a lot about joining with women of color and being aware of their history and being aware of generational kinds of things that maybe you're not aware of because you're not a person of color about trauma and what it looks like and people of color that it goes back to the Tuskegee Institute kind of medical crisis. Yeah. And so I put all that in one chapter so that they do not um, create these faux pas that then clinicians of color have to come behind them and try to fix. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was what that one chapter is dedicated to. And so it's hopeful for me that it gets in the hand of everyone who needs it or if someone has a loved one that they give it to them because it definitely for me is more about impact. Everybody, of course, you want to make money, but for me it's about impact. What impact can I make on this world with that book if I never see that woman in my office? Right. And, 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 he, and that's, it's the main reason why I wrote my book. Um, I have a book coming out mm. very soon. It's pre pre sale now, guys. Um, it's called Finding Happy: Seven Steps to Relationships That Will Not Steal Your Joy. And mm. the reason that I wrote it was because it addressed a lot of what I saw in my practice. And you know, I also thought too, you know, there's this narrative that there are not a lot of, of clinicians of color out there. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be able to offer the book as a resource that if you wanted to start doing the exploration of unpacking why your relationships are the way that they are, you can use the book 
and maybe take the book to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, or, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Or hear my voice in the book and say, you know what? She sounds she sounds cool enough that maybe I think I can it could be okay for me to do therapy if I find the right person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how did you come to this work? So I I don't have a like a major life story to say about that. I have always loved helping people. I have always found myself to well. I remember my mom told me a story recently and being. I don't even remember the story, but she says when I was like, um, I think it was in middle school, and she said I came home one day, and this part of you, I always knew I wanted to be either a psychiatrist or a psychologist. That part, I guess God deposited in my spirit in my mother's room. I always knew that. Um, she said I came home one day from school and said, Mom, I know what I want to do. And she goes, okay, what's that? And I said, I want to be a psychiatrist. And she goes, well, why do you want to do that? And she says, I said to her, because there are a lot of kids in my class that have a lot of problems and I want to help them. And so I don't even remember by that, but that does sound like me. And, um, and I just remember always being a good listener to people and holding secrets. Like people would tell me things and they would be like, oh, tell Angie, she'll never tell anybody. And I would hold a lot of things for people. And it wasn't until I got in high school where I really realized like there's much more to um, this gift. And I want to really make this my major. And then that's kind of how I continued along that line. And I never wanted to do anything else. Now, I also never wanted to go to medical school. So that's why I'm not a psychiatrist. <laughs> and I'm a psychologist because I'm like, oh, no, I don't, you know, I wish I had rethought that now because now I do a lot of brain stuff but in my practice. But then I was like, I'm not, I'm, I, I didn't think I was built for that back then to, to, <laughs> to go to medical school. So, um, but for me, I, I, I don't regret it. I, I'm fine just with what I'm, my craft is and my practice. So, and do you, do you, a lot of people don't know the difference in the credentials because there are a lot mm-hmm. of them now. Uh, but why yeah, did you pick psychology over, let's say, social work or like a mental health education? Um, I, I think it was a matter of what I was exposed mm-hmm. to. So I was, uh, got my bachelor's from um, my home university, which would have been West Virginia University because that's where I grew up. So I got my BA, then I knew the next level was master's. I never thought, I think traditionally when I grew up, social work was more like the social worker who came to your house. Um, the social worker well, was more of a case manager case. kind of role. Yeah. yeah. That's the that's the introduction for me. So um, quite naturally, my um, the line for me went from BA, MA, and then to go from the MA to the doctor was really at the encouragement of a mentor that I had. And she said to me, you know, you you have a great clinical skill set, um, but there's more to this. He says, you need more theory work. You got to go back to school. And so I then took upon myself to research schools and got into the program that I got into, but I now know what she meant. Like, we intuitively have great skills, many of us. We can make progress with folks by doing things that didn't even have a name to it back then. But then there are some things that theoretically you need to have an understanding of why you're doing what you're doing or you can hurt people. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what um, drove me to, to go back was really the motivation from her to say there's more to this. 
you, you can learn a whole lot more. You're good, but you can be great. And then I respected her enough to say, okay. Okay, so my understanding, my ignorance. So I remember, okay, okay. You know, I, don't, I don't have a problem with saying I'm ignorant about certain things. So okay. I remember being younger and my, my one of my good friends, her mother was going to school for a psychology. And even mm-hmm. though she had her master's in psychology, she, mm-hmm. I remember her always going back to school. And she mm-hmm. she explained to me that she couldn't make any money <laughs> until she had her doctorate. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure if the field has changed. I know, like you said, the, the, the evolution of social work has changed in terms of like mm-hmm. the, the amount of clinical hours that we have to have in order to be licensed, the amount of you know, clinical experience and theory and psychological theories that we learn is, is probably different than what they used to, to do in the past. I think a lot of it was more so service oriented and grassroots organizing. And now mm-hmm. I feel like 90% of the programs, if, if not, you know, definitely more than 60 or 70% of the programs are very clinical now. Yeah. And, okay. And the grassroots organizing is either an elective or it's a separate um, but I remember her her feeling was that she needed to have a doctorate in order to make any money and, and mm-hmm, psychology. Mm-hmm. Is it still that way? No. It's okay. not. I think that that's the perception that people, I think people see these doctor people like Dr. Phil or whoever and think, wow, I want to be like that. I want to make all this money. God no, it, it's not that way. I know a lot of people who are LMFTs or LPCs who have great practices and make money. The doctorate affords you a different level of marketability because some people only want to see somebody because of that yep. word. They, oh, they have a doctorate. But there are, I have great colleagues who do not have doctorates, but they have a license, they're licensed master's level people. And they do very well. They do, you know, they get extra um, courses, and so they stay on top of what's out there. They um, get training in areas that they didn't know something about, so they get better at those crafts and skills. But I think back then, yes, that was the only way that we thought you could do it, is to get a doctorate. But now, that's not necessary. True. So um, just so, just to clarify, I'm talking about like someone graduating today with a master's degree in psychology, they can go into mm-hmm. private practice. Well, they need to get their license. They have to get a license, and so they have to get so many hours, probably very similar to the social work field. They have to get so many hours of working under a licensed person. So they they don't they can't go straight into something. They have to have a license before they can hang the shingle. So they can, but they but presumably, let's say they do their time underneath someone else, they can at some point go into independent practice just with their license. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because obviously that's changed. Mm-hmm. Because even when yeah. I how I came to the field was I was depressed. I went to my therapist. I felt better. And I was mm-hmm. like, hey, I want to do this. I want to give people this gift. And he was like, okay. And I was like, well, I'm, you know, I've got, I got to go get my side E because that's just what I thought. Mm-hmm. And then, for mm-hmm. those listening, a side D is a doctorate of psychology. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, because um, we, we thought all these acronyms and there are, are listeners who are not in the field and then there are some students mm-hmm. and people who are, are thinking about being in the field and they're like, what's that? 
on. <laughs> so I thought I had to get my my psychology degree, and my my therapist, who is a psychologist, was like, you know, I can teach you how to do this in two years and be working, or I can teach you how to do this in six. Mm. Which would you take? And I was like, I'll take the two year, and I actually, I actually completed my two year in a year and a half. Okay. So okay. That's awesome. you know, and when I say that, I think maybe some people think because of the time that it may diminish mm-hmm. the quality. Mm-hmm. But I busted mm-hmm. my, I bust my ass. I mean, in mm-hmm. the, that year and a half, like I literally shut everything else down and out of my life in order to do mm-hmm. it in that year and a half, and that was like literally packing four semesters into a year and a half. So wow. it was not wow. easy, and you know that that's that's four semesters plus clinical hours plus being somebody's mama plus working. Like I had to yeah. shut everything else down because I was like, time mm-hmm. is of the essence, and I'm gonna do this now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. Okay, I think that that's cool. I also think, I, I, I feel like depending on what you want to do with your career, I think that maybe psychology degrees are probably going to die a little bit. Die down. It definitely depends on what people, yeah, it definitely depends on what people want to do um, and how they want to craft because there's so many, therapists really now do so many more things than just therapy. Mm-hmm. There's so many other things they do. There's training you can teach. There's you know. There's so many other avenues people can take. Right. Yes. Okay. So tell the people how to find you. Sure. Thank you. Um, so my website is www.clax. And my last name is C L A C K Associates.com. All my social medias are at Angela or at Clack. My last name first, Clack. Angela, except one, and, and that's at Dr. Angela Clack. But I have, so it's the IG, the Facebook, and then my YouTube. They're all on um, either Dr. Angela or at Clack Angela. One more question. What does being a black therapist mean to you? Being a black therapist to me means being means forging a path for people to uh, see who we look like, to see a face that looks like them, to be able to speak or be able to come into spaces to hear their voice heard, but also forging a path that I hope that other people who are thinking about developing uh, a craft or a skill set in therapy because we don't want people to have to feel like they don't have any place to go. We need more of us in the field and doing other things such as teaching. We need a lot of professors who can bring that uh, experience into the classroom. So for me, being a black clinician is definitely about forging and making and giving a face to the communities of color that mental health and seeking help is not a bad thing. Okay. Okay. So thank you for coming on and talking to talking to the people. Um, and we really appreciate you and your insight and definitely what you do in the community because it's needed. It's it's a necessity and you know, people need to know that they can go to people who look like us. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode with me and Dr. Claps. And I just wanna say this, like you know, the the clinicians that we have coming on the show um, in the coming weeks, uh, in the upcoming year, we, we're doing this because we want to give you guys access to more clinicians of colors who are in your neighborhood and, you know, clinicians that you actually work with if you're in need 
And if you know a clinician who would make a good guest for the show, or if you are a clinician and you want to be on the show, make sure you reach out to us at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com so that we can get you on an episode of the show. Okay, for everybody else listening, we appreciate you for listening. Like, subscribe, share, and be well. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Black Therapist Podcast. Once again, you can follow us on all our social media sites at Black Therapist Podcast on Instagram and on Twitter, as well as Black in Therapy on Facebook. Or you can follow your hosts, me, Miss M-S-N-I-K-I Banks on Instagram and Twitter, as well as you can find out any information about me at Nikita, N-I-K-I-T-A Banks.com, as well as the show's website website blacktherapistpodcast.com and don't forget if you want to send us any general feedback show suggestions uh show topics or guest ideas please feel free to drop us an email at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com thank you be well